I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. the fiction nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And Sugi, I have a question for you as the resident podcast pessimist. I resemble that remark. <laughs> Today... I love it when I get to write this script and I get to put this kind of stuff in. Today we're going to discuss a book written by a friend of yours, which actually, which you actually suggested for the podcast, and this, that book describes a more optimistic t- form of progressive politics. But before we get into the book itself and what it can teach us about our politics today, how could you possibly have become friends with this optimistic person? Well. First of all, this person is Sam Friedman, who's a fantastic journalist and who was my teacher at Columbia and my thesis advisor and um, just kind of an amazing mentor and encourager um, of journalists, really, I think people all over the world now. Um, Plus, I mean, speaking of optimists, I'm friends with you, aren't I? And and aren't you always (laughs) calling for a more optimistic form of progressive politics? I, I wouldn't, I, you know what, I, I'm only an optimist in comparison to you. I don't know that I'm actually overall an optimist, but I do think that, you know, critique, which we do a lot of on this show is, is important, um, but endorsement matters too. You know, if nothing good ever happens in, in the world or in America, if you can't show any good examples of what you want things to be or reasons why the country's worth saving, then why participate in politics at all? You know, we should just turn the place over to Trump and move to New Zealand. Don't tempt me. However, in the spirit of cooperation, I will put forward one good thing. We are hosting the journalist Sam Friedman today. Sam is an award-winning professor, columnist, and the author of 10 acclaimed books. 
He was a reporter for the New York Times from 1981 through 1987. From 2004 to 08, he wrote the papers on education column and won first prize in the Education Writers Association's annual competition in 05. From 2006 through 2016, he wrote the On Religion column and received the Goldziher Prize for journalists in 2017 for a series of columns about Muslim Americans had, that had been published over the preceding six years. He's here to talk to us about his amazing new book, Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. Sam, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you both. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, when someone embarks on a historical book like this, which I am assuming, I'm sure correctly, involves a ton of research, I always figure that they've chosen the topic because it speaks in some way to the present. Like, you know, we're right about the history to understand where we are now. Hubert Humphrey is probably best known for losing the 68 presidential election to Richard Nixon. But your book focuses on the young Hubert Humphrey before he became Lyndon Johnson's VP, even before he was a senator. So what attracted you to that territory? It's a great question that you ask, Whitney, because initially I started this book in January 2015. And it's very relevant to remind people that at that point, Barack Obama was in his second term and we're a few months away from marriage equality being declared a constitutional right by the Supreme Court. And I thought I was working on filling some holes in history and in biography. The whole of people who knew about Humphrey from his mistaken catastrophic support for the Vietnam War and his several failed runs for president the gap in history that assumed that the civil rights movement began in the mid-50s with Brown versus Board of Ed and with Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and the Montgomery bus boycott when there had actually been a really important decade of activity in the 1940s that sets the table for everything that comes later. And that felt like enough to me to be filling those two gaps. But then November 2016 happened and we know what happened then. And I realized I was writing about current events. Because the battle that Humphrey and his allies were fighting was partly directly about civil rights, which at that time was understood to mean not only the rights of black Americans, but particularly the rights of Jewish Americans and even Catholic Americans as well, all of whom were the objects of varying degrees of discrimination by the white Protestant majority in this country at that time. But broadly, what Humphrey was involved in was a fight for interfaith, interracial, inclusive democracy against, and these were the exact terms used in the 1940s too, white supremacy, Christian nationalism, and America firstism. And so I was struck so often at the parallels between the 40s and the years we've been living in during uh, the Trump era. And so that gave me, I think, an additional level of commitment an incentive to do the book as well as I could do it, because it was going to be, if I executed it the right way, more than filling those gaps, even though that would have been plenty uh, to validate the years of work on it anyway. Sam, am I remembering right that you, you came to Minnesota in the fall of 2016 to begin researching it? I began in, in 2015. Um, my first trip to Minneapolis to start to go through Humphrey's archived papers at the State Historical Society was in June of 2015, and I came out a few more times that summer, both to work in the archives and also because there were only a handful of people I could interview who actually had been firsthand involved with Humphrey's political life in the 40s. I 
was not interested in secondhand memories by people who knew him later, but there were a few people who I got literally the year before they died or the year before they fell deeply into dementia. And I was doing some of that that summer. And then I was fortunate to have a sabbatical semester from Columbia Journalism School in the fall of 2016. And that allowed me to then get into that kind of day by day sitting in the archives. And I mean, I can't say that I did the exact Robert Caro thing of turning every page, but I turned a lot of pages. And that's, I think that's what I'm remembering us. We we were sort of passing ships in the night that semester, right? But so early on in the... Yet another Minnesota-oriented po- podcast subject, I yes. would note. Yes. I mean, we've got to catch up to Kansas City sometime. But so early on in the book, Sam, you describe Hubert Humphrey's encounter with a man named Otis Shipman, who is black and who is building a road near Humphrey's childhood home in South Dakota. And you point out that this is the really the only meaningful contact that Humphrey has with a black person until he goes to graduate school at LSU um, decades later. So how does a person with that background become a champion for civil rights? That's kind of the question that drove the whole book. Uh, Sugi, my good friend at Columbia Journalism School, Michael Shapiro, who's also an author, always says that a book has to be driven by a question. And the book has to pursue the answer to that question. And for me, the question was, why does this very white guy from this very white place care so much about blacks and Jews? And I think actually a clue to that is with his encounter as an 11-year-old boy with this black road crew that comes from Omaha, Nebraska, up to the grasslands of eastern South Dakota to put down the first gravel road near Humphrey's hometown. And there's certainly a curiosity to the townspeople, but Humphrey actually has a different kind of curiosity. He goes out to meet them and he kind of befriends them and they befriend him. And he still remembers this encounter decades later when he's dictating recollections to his communications director that that man, Norm Sherman, is going to shape into Humphrey's autobiography. So there's kind of a mythological power to me of that moment. It doesn't predict the rest of his life, but it says something about Humphrey's temperament, even at a young age. But then you're right. Fast forward from 1922, when that happens, to 1939, when he goes off to grad school at Louisiana State. And Humphrey, at that point, has only lived in overwhelmingly white Protestant places, in South Dakota or in Minneapolis, a couple months in Denver to go to pharmacy school. And he's been oblivious at that point to actually a great deal of the turmoil around Minneapolis and the University of Minnesota involving racism and involving anti-Semitism, a good deal of which was practiced by the university's own president. Um, And people who want to find out more about that should look at an incredible online uh, presentation called A Campus Divided by the scholar Ravel and Prell. But Humphrey, first of all, his college is interrupted for five, six years by the Great Depression. He has to drop out and help his family survive economically. He comes back, he's married, he soon has a baby. He is so busy catching up and trying to finish his bachelor's degree that he's oblivious to these battles. And he's also typical of many liberals of his age, oriented around FDR's economic-oriented New Deal programs. The New Deal doesn't think in terms of racial inequality. It doesn't think in terms of religious prejudice. It centers economic class for better and for worse. And so Humphrey then goes to... Baton Rouge, Louisiana, solely because they're offering him 400 bucks at LSU to be a graduate assistant, and he really desperately needs the money. But in going there, 
three, three. <laughs> I have to say just real quickly, like as a former graduate student, it was fun to read the parts <laughs> of him, like scraping along the teaching assistantships, all the other stuff that he had to go through. Like you don't imagine a president or not, you know, a, a guy who was candidate for president having yeah, to do 400 that. 400 bucks for TA in classes and his wife, Muriel, who was normally working, but they had a little baby daughter, Nancy, but she would make sandwiches at home and either go to the campus or send them with Hubert to sell to his classmates, you know, for a dime or a quarter or whatever they could get for a ham sandwich. And that was part of how they managed to make their rent. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. But Humphrey goes and for the first time he's plunged into a Jim Crow society. And it's not just that he sees the separate waiting rooms and water fountains in the back of the bus. But he really remembers these individual degrading moments. You know, a black pedestrian who's crossing the street too slowly for the satisfaction of a white motorist who just reviles him with the N-word in front of everybody. It's a complete humiliation. And that stays with Humphrey, those kinds of episodes. And then he also makes Jewish friends for the first time in his life, including a debate team teammate who tells Humphrey about having five uncles who are trapped in Eastern Europe under Nazi control, all of whom are going to be exterminated. And that's the beginning of Humphrey at a time when America is very isolationist, really understanding the vulnerability of Jewish people. And then what ties it all together, and this is really remarkable to me, is Humphrey does a seminar during the whole academic year with a professor named Rudolf Eberly. And Eberly is this one-eighth Jewish anti-Nazi sociologist who had begun studying in the early 1930s the process that Germany went from being a democracy to a dictatorship, because that question tormented him. How could that have happened? And he's kicked out of Germany for that and his partial Jewish ancestry, even though he's converted to Christianity long ago. And he is penniless. He's scrambling to find somewhere to work and settle his family and ends up in Baton Rouge at LSU. And in the class Humphrey has with him, Eberly's talking about his research, which he's in the process of writing in a book form. Eberly talks about his family's personal experiences. And Eberly draws a direct connection, a direct parallel between the plight of Jews in Nazi Germany and blacks in the Jim Crow South. And these experiences that Humphrey has in Baton Rouge just give him a moral vision that he didn't have in that same way before. And they don't replace his concern with economic inequality, but they map on it. And for him through his whole career, it's not like you have a choice an either or between dealing with economic and class issues and dealing with racial and religious bigotry, he sees them as part of a greater liberal whole. And that's what he brings back to Minneapolis with him. You know, I'm not going to say that it, it's weird to say this makes me hopeful, but you one forgets how virulent the political climate of anti-Semitism and anti and racism was at the period of time that you're talking about in the in the you know late 30s early 40s and some of the newspaper stories and columns and stuff that you're quoting in Minneapolis not in the south right 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 um and and it reminds me okay we have dealt with this before what is happening right now with the proto fascist movements in America and the and, and and Trump you know this has been a part of the country and and, and a really loud part of the country 
Um, so it's not unprecedented. People keep saying unprecedented, and I keep thinking that's not correct. Um, anyway, Humphrey campaigned to become mayor of Minneapolis in 43 and 45. And during that time, and this is an important part of the book, you, you hear echoes of that, of that rhetoric, particularly in the America First Party and its leading proponent, Charles Lindbergh, who was a son of Minnesota and a you know, famous person in the state. Um, could you talk about that period and then read a passage from the book? Involving sure, it? I'm so gl- I'm so glad that you asked about it. Um, it's not just the re- Minneapolis is a center of right wing extremism of pro Nazi sentiment in the 1930s with a group called the Silver Shirts, which is modeled on Hitler's brown shirts. The leading minister in town, William Bell Riley, is this erudite, refined, well dressed, institution building Baptist minister. The elites in the city belonged to his congregation, and he's a firm believer in the forgery, the protocols of the elders of Zion, which purports to show how Jews want to take over the world. That's who sets the a lot of the religious tenor in Minneapolis. And Minneapolis gives a welcome reception, not only to Lindbergh, who's a native son, but Gerald L.K. Smith, who is sort of the Trump of his era, who's the founder of the America First Party, and whose patrons in Minneapolis include a U.S. Senator, Ernest Lundeen, and after Lundeen dies in a plane crash, his wife, Norma. And when these meetings take place, these speeches by Smith, William Bell Riley's Sunday services, the Silver Shirts meetings, it's not just the dirtbags of Minneapolis who were going to them, which is what the mainstream newspapers and the good liberals in town are trying to say, that only the great unwashed would, you know, be the deplorable to such. It's only the deplorables. It's right. It's the president of the board of ed. It's the head of the business association. It's the dentists and doctors. Um, it's school teachers. This is acceptable mainstream opinion. Blacks, yes, we let them vote here in Minneapolis. Yes, they work. But of course, they can only work in domestic service or whether that's cleaning houses or being hotel bellhops and, and waiters. And um, they have to live in their little ghetto on the north side. And there's a famous incident um, in the early 30s when a black postal worker who's a World War I veteran tries to move into a mostly Scandinavian Protestant neighborhood in South Minneapolis. And thousands of white vigilantes dressed in their Sunday finery, their coats and ties and top hats and dresses, are besieging that man, Arthur Lee's house, every night to try to drive him out. And for the Jews in Minneapolis, they can't even join the auto club. You can't even, as a Jew, join AAA in Minneapolis. In other cities, at least Jews had like the niche occupation of working in department stores or even owning them. Can't do that in Minneapolis. And even in the midst of World War II or towards the end of the war, when the newsreels are being shown in theaters in Minneapolis and elsewhere of the death camps, when the first articles in English by correspondents from the New York Times and newspapers such as that are telling the story of the... uh, the Holocaust, 
at that same moment, Jewish kids in Minneapolis are being beaten, forced off the road in their cars, pushed through plate glass windows. And this is happening right as Humphrey is running for mayor in 1945. And the current mayor says the thing that mayors in Minneapolis had always said to that point, and that newspaper editorialists had always said, which is that this is just teenage hooliganism and you know, don't make anything much out of it. And Humphrey sees it for what it is. He sees it as a predictable outcome of the way anti-Semitism had been coddled in Minneapolis for decades. And just a couple months into Humphrey being mayor, there's a very parallel incident when the Minneapolis police force, which then, as in the time of George Floyd, was notorious for its racism, busts into a cafe owned by a black civil rights activist, starts demanding the patron's identification when two women refuse to do it. They're hauled down to jail in the middle of the night to get booked. But one of them works for the black newspaper publisher Cecil Newman, who is a huge friend and influence on Humphrey. She calls Newman. Newman calls Humphrey. And in the middle of the night, this new mayor, this greenhorn, this newcomer, goes down to the police station, police headquarters, and makes the police release them. And then takes them out to coffee with him in the middle of the night. And then demotes the deputy inspector who led the raid. And then makes the whole police force take human relations, as they called it, training at the University of Minnesota. I mean... I'll just say briefly, the tragedy of how quickly Humphrey went to Washington as senator is that he and his terrific police chief, Ed Ryan, never got to complete their effort to reform the Minneapolis police. And we've seen the effect of that in George Floyd's murder. But the point is, Humphrey understood the patterns and the depth of these bigotries and took them on. He took them on in a very personal way, as well as in a more systemic, let's pass legislation way. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. So we, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of his strategies, and you've mentioned one already, that incident with, uh, with the police chief. Um, but could you read this uh, section from the book uh, about uh, Lindbergh? I think it's important to sort of remind people of the way that he sounded at that particular time. Sure, I will absolutely do this. And there's a person... A very important person who was going to be referred to here, I'll just let your viewers and listeners know, and that's a man named Sam Shiner. And just like Cecil Newman, the black journalist, was Humphrey's educator on anti-Semitism in Minneapolis, on uh, racism in Minneapolis, Sam Shiner, who was a lawyer who no law firms would hire because he was Jewish and becomes the sort of one-man anti-defamation league, he was Humphrey's friend and tutor on anti-Semitism. So his name comes up and that's who he is. On September 11th, 1941, Minnesota's homegrown hero, Charles Lindbergh, addressed an audience of supporters of the America First Committee. Quote, the three most important groups who have been pressing this country toward war, he told the crowd in Des Moines, Iowa, are the British, the Jewish, and the Roosevelt administration. On the subject of the Jews, Lindbergh nodded in brief sympathy toward, quote, the persecution they have suffered in Germany, before more characteristically warning that, quote, the greatest danger to this country was not Hitler's fascism, but rather Jewish, quote, ownership and influence in our motion pictures, our press, our radio, and our government. That influence, Lindbergh prophesied, could lead our country to destruction. 
Within three days of the Des Moines speech, Sam Shiner drafted a response, which would be issued under the name of the Anti-Defamation Group's chairman, Arthur Brin. The letter asserted that the Jews of this country yield to no one in their patriotism, and on that basis, it demanded that the America First Committee repudiate Lindbergh's balderdash, canards, and threadbare falsehoods. Shiner's ultimatum thrust his obscure organization, three years old then, with a staff consisting essentially of him alone, into the national spotlight. It pitted the council against an isolationist organization deeply woven into America's corporate and political mainstream. America First's national chairman was Arthur Wood, a retired general who now led Sears Roebuck. A Harvard-educated attorney, Jacob Holzerman, headed the committee's Minneapolis chapter. In one respect, Shiner succeeded. Newspapers as far afield as Philadelphia, New York, and L.A. carried a wire service article about his letter. Otherwise, the response served as just another reminder of Shiner's isolation. It was predictable enough that he received hate mail, reviling, quote, your filthy, rotten race. It was not surprising that the America First Committee stood by Lindbergh, its star attraction. But Shiner also received a dressing down from the national leadership of the Anti-Defamation League, his presumed allies, for having dared to, quote, initiate independent action on matters of very important national policy. The Starker, that's the Yiddish word for a tough guy, needed to know his place. The coming of war did little to alter the fundamental struggle that Shiner faced. Even as the United States took up arms against racial and religious supremacy in both its German and Japanese versions, Shiner surveyed and surveilled a fervid pageant of anti-Semitism in his own city and state. In a confidential report to his board in 1942, he estimated that he had investigated 500 complaints about anti-Semitism in the previous three years. That summer, the anti-defamation group streamlined its name to the Minnesota Jewish Council, and Shiner announced the desire for it to, quote, become more an educational and constructive agency rather than a purely defensive one. Events proved him far too optimistic. Thank you so much. So as we've been discussing, you know, it's, it's not hard to draw uh, the analogy between Lindbergh's rhetoric and Trump's, and, and Trump even borrowed the America First slogan, really from Lindbergh. And Hubert, hum- exactly. Hubert Humphrey lost his race for mayor in 43, but he won in 45, um, beating back these just these sort of um, anti-Semitic and anti-black forces in the city, the kind of what we would call today the the MAGA of Minneapolis. Right. And, you know, I, I'm going to I'm I'm accused of being the resident um, pessimist of the podcast by Whitney, but I will take a take a leave from his optimism and, and ask, you know, what did what did Humphrey do that progressive politicians can learn from now? I, I think there are a lot of lessons that Humphrey has. Um, I'll try to enumerate some of them, and these are in no specific order. One thing is that Humphrey used the language of religion, which is very powerful language, to progressive ends. And that's something that since the civil rights movement progressives in this country have forgotten. We've sort of abdicated the power of religious teaching. And that doesn't mean being a believer in divinity. It means understanding religious teaching as part of our intellectual heritage. To use that on behalf of progressive forces. He, although he grew up as a Methodist, 
He was deeply read in the social justice prophets of the Hebrew Bible, Amos, Hosea, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the same people who Martin Luther King quoted from so often. And Humphrey spoke about sin. When he talked about racism and anti-Semitism, he used the language of sin. He used the language about the need for penance. And I think that was very powerful language that we need as liberals and progressives to reclaim instead of handing it over to those who would misuse it and use it to terrible ends. Secondly, Humphrey understood that you need both mass movements and insiders, and that there's a synergy between the two, and that it's not an either or, that both in Minneapolis and particularly in the battle at the 1948 Democratic Convention to get the Democrats to support civil rights for the first time ever, which is this huge landmark in the movement. He was inside the convention working with people who knew all about parliamentary procedure and how to get motions in front of the convention. And he was crafting a speech he was going to give to persuade the delegates to defy Harry Truman's timidity and to defy the Southern threat to walk out of the convention and form a splinter party. He was going to persuade them to endorse civil rights in the face of all that. But Humphrey knew that what he was doing inside was completely interdependent with what the great black labor leader, A. A. Philip Randolph, was doing literally outside the convention hall, which was leading protest marches saying black young men should not register for the draft, should refuse to serve until Harry Truman desegregates the military. I mean, think about it. You send black men to defeat racial supremacy abroad in the form of Nazi Germany, and they do it on behalf of a segregated military and they come back to this country, and throughout the South they're attacked when they're wearing their uniforms. So Humphrey and Randolph both knew these two things were interdependent. They were working for the same end. So that's another lesson. You need the inside game, and you need mass mobilization outside. But one without the other will not succeed. And I think another lesson from Humphrey is that you need to build coalitions, and they can't be based on loyalty oaths on a whole long list of issues. They need to be based on who agrees with me on this issue. I mean, actually, I think we're seeing a great illustration right now with that with the never Trumpers. I mean, when I think of the bravery of, you know, Liz Cheney and, and Adam Kitzinger and people in the media, like, you know, Charlie Sykes and David Frum, um, Sarah Long, well, I don't expect to agree with them on tax rates. I don't expect to agree with them probably on immigration policy on certain environmental issues. What's important is we agree on preserving democracy. And Humphrey on civil rights, starting in Minneapolis, when he wanted to take this city that had such deep bigotry and such a refusal to acknowledge it, much less rectify it, he put together in the face of a do-nothing city council, a group of volunteers. They were Democrats and Republicans. They were white, black, Japanese American, they were men and women, they were management, they were labor. And again, many of them opposed each other. They opposed each other in elections, they opposed each other in labor strikes, but they all, for one reason or another, wanted the city to move forward in terms of legislation on issues of civil rights. And that was very powerful, and it's a really important lesson. And instead of looking for a purified faction that can never really wield effective power, 
Humphrey tried to figure out who can I enlist for this cause. And, you know, even the way he succeeded in getting the civil rights um, plank enacted at the 1948 convention is a testament to that, because at that convention, there were 1,700 delegates. I'm sorry, 1,500 delegates. Hey, hold on. We want to get, we're going to get to that. Well, I want to break, okay. I'm going to break you off here before we get there, because I want to stay here just for a minute in, in this earlier period with uh, Sam Shiner and, and Cecil Newman, a Kansas City guy, which is where I live, yes. uh, and who wrote for The Call, which is a great, important newspaper in Kansas City's history. Um, Humphrey, one of the things that he did was, he was good at making friends, it seemed like to me. Um and you have a phrase in the, and he liked it. Uh, and then you have a phrase, you use a phrase in the book, the politics of joy, you know. And there is something joyful about the alliances that he forms and these groups and the way that they work together and that, the way that, and that they trust each other and that often these are coming uh, uh, groups that are made across different sorts of lines, whether they be class lines, race lines, religious lines. Um, how good is the Progressive Party at doing that today? And who are the leaders who are doing that today? Yeah. Well, I think you're right. You're right about the politics of joy that Humphrey fought intense battles. He fought battles on behalf of civil rights that almost got him assassinated when he was mayor. But he did see politics as a joyful and also noble enterprise. And he was a bullion and effusive. He loved people. He felt what their experiences were deeply. You know, you can't fake doing retail politics. You really well, can't. Well, Ron DeSantis is trying and, right now, but well, and, and it's seen for how right, and it's seen for what a fake it is. Exactly, that that's exactly my point. And um, Humphrey had that quality. Who has it today on the progressive side? I mean, I think that not just for geographical reasons. Amy Klobuchar has a lot of Humphrey's love and passion for retail politics and also as an heir to his tradition. I think Cory Booker has a lot of the vibe that Humphrey had in bringing a sense of passion and enjoyment um, to political work. I think that, um, you know, Bernie Sanders, who's, you know, settled more into the statesman's role working with Joe Biden more recently, but had the fervor and, and the passion that, that Humphrey bought and an ability to really connect to people and to understand the obstacles that ordinary people were facing. So I think there, you know, there are people out there who do carry this on. You know, I think that the if we perceive a lack of such people now, I'm not sure that it's that they're less in politics. I think that part of it is that there's a pervasive cynicism in how not only voters, but a lot of my tribe in the media look at politics that often doesn't give a fair enough break to people who actually, in spite of whatever compromises they have to make, and Humphrey had to make them himself, are driven by ideals. Um, that hasn't totally vanished. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. It was interesting to hear you. I mean, I've, I've heard you say this before about Cory Booker, and I just think it's such a because like when I read the book, I at least I mean, I'm a person of color from the East Coast. I grew up on the East Coast and I moved to Minnesota with no family ties here, like no previous history here. And so to read the book for me is like, I think enormously eye opening, because as much as I kind of hear about the history of racism and bigotry in Minneapolis, like this book lays, lays it out sort of so clearly and also lays out Humphrey as kind of like a person who is 
to some extent, like with a lot of with a lot of help from, you know, his friends, his parents, et cetera, his upbringing, um, his own choices, like kind of overcoming whiteness, the whiteness that would otherwise be yes. handed to him. And, yes. and then you're naming yes. Cory Booker as one of his heirs, which is so interesting to me. Um, I mean, I, I guess I do think of like Cory Booker as sort of um, and, and certainly Amy Klobuchar as well. But out of the people that you've mentioned, right, like Bernie Sanders is Jewish. Um, Cory Booker is black. Um, and so like now they're mm-hmm. the people who are maybe in a position to do some of the things that Humphrey did, which is like an interesting progression. I, I, those are not like if I had it, predicted, oh, Sam is going to say X, Y and Z is like the the, hum, the Hebrew Humphrey of today. Those are not the people I would have guessed. Who who would you have guessed? I'm I don't curious. know. I think I would have. I think I would have. Um, I think I would have struggled. I mean, some of those people. I don't know. We had um, a writer on from San Francisco, Matthew Clark Davidson, who spoke very compellingly about Nancy Pelosi um, and how she got things done. Um, so no. Question so she about might have been that. someone I would have. I would have thought of. Um, I guess. Yeah. I, I Suvi doesn't want doesn't want to like I mean, I, anyone. She's not <laughs> liking people. That's uh-huh. not. That's well, the well, politics of joy. Well, well, I think I think I'm also drawn to people who were younger, meaning you know Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden have done great work in their ways. They're in their 80s, right? Um, right. Humphrey's heyday was in his 30s and 40s, and so I think it's also my mind is thinking of people who are in a more vigorous middle of their life, and that's not true of Bernie Sanders, um, although the way he campaigned in 2016, you would have thought. Yeah, You know, he had the energy of someone 20 or 30 years younger and the passion. But with, you know, Amy Klobuchar and Cory Booker, um, they're in their 50s or 60s, which in terms of life expectancies is probably not so different from someone in their late 30s to mid 40s in Humphrey's time. So maybe that's part of the reason that and I think also because I spent a lot of time in Minneapolis, live there part time now. I grew up in New Jersey um, and have family and friends there to this day. So I think I've also had a close-in look at the way both Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar do politics. And it's, again, their love of being connected to people. Not everyone loves to, like, press flesh at a parade, but you can't fake it. Not everyone understands why you need to go to all the funerals and wakes. But also I think that both of them... Um, and in his way, Bernie Sanders, too, understood that it's not just trying to stir up people with a speech and get people to march, although that has its value as part of the package. But you have to learn how to run the machinery of politics. And this is where Pelosi was brilliant to get the legislation through, because otherwise, actually, you set up progressives. Let's forget about the other side right now. For tremendous disappointment, if you build up with a mass movement the expectation of change, and then because you're not skilled on the inside of politics, you can't deliver on it, the drop down the emotional elevator shaft is devastating and it becomes much harder to get people mobilized to come out again. You need, this is what I learned watching community organizers on one of my earlier books about a black church, you need to have wins. Even if those wins start on quote unquote small issues, your people need to know that they can win in order to keep being inspired to come back for the next battle. So maybe I would think of actually, I mean, I 
I I loved Elizabeth Warren in part because of her practicality. But then yes. and she right, she aspired to the national stage. And then I would sort of like looking down the down the road, I feel like AOC gets people energized in a way that other people don't, but has an interest in discussing kind of their practicalities. And then I am like always fascinated by Katie Porter, but she doesn't seem like she wants to run for higher office. But she has this kind of like yeah everyman energy and like whips out her whiteboard and is like, let's get yeah. the practical, practical bit done. Yeah. There are people out there. My list wasn't all consuming. And there are also really, really exciting people, especially women coming up through state legislatures. So there's Jess Piper in Missouri, who's a teacher who's in the Missouri legislature and totally outspoken and fierce. I, and who, well, I follow you know, her was, Twitter or X or whatever. She's in, very interesting. Yeah. I like her. Okay, okay, we're running out of time, so I'm, I'm we're gonna cut off this discussion. I appreciate Sugi came up with some names of people that she likes. That's a we'll, we'll flag that in the show notes. Um, but I have to say, I taught Sugi in grad school, and I did not. Find I know. Her I to just te- this is just pessimist. we just tease her about it. It's, that's that's part of our gig. Um, it's not true. Uh, so, but we have to get to the end of the book. Uh, you know, the climactic yeah. scene before we sign off here, which is that. That uh, 1948 Democratic National Convention, speaking of wins, which is a place where Humphrey does get a win by doing sort of interior, you know, running the machine of politics and getting votes and, and, and doing what he needed to do. And I didn't know this story. So I wonder if you could just sort of briefly tell us that story as we sign off. Sure. Well, I'll try to boil it down as much as I can. I know, yeah. Basically, Read the book if you want the whole story. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> uh, and, you know, until the 1948 convention, the Democratic Party, even under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, had tolerated segregation in the South. FDR's New Deal coalition, which was mostly composed of liberals and union people and Jewish and Catholic immigrants or children of immigrants, also included this block of Southern segregationists. What the Republican Party is now as the party of white supremacy, especially in the South, is what the Democrats were at that time. And FDR needed their votes on election day. He needed their votes in Congress. So he let the New Deal be implemented in racially unequal ways in the South. And he let Democratic platforms be written with no endorsement of civil rights. And Harry Truman was ready to do the same thing in 1948, because still, this is what you have to do to win the White House. And Hubert Humphrey and his allies go in there determined to push a civil rights plank at great risk. Humphrey's 37 years old. He is such a kid. He's only been mayor for three years of a mid-sized city. Because he had to stop college for so long during the Depression, he, less than 10 years since he got his bachelor's degree. And Truman's people at the convention are saying, if you give this speech, your political career is over. They're calling him a pipsqueak. Truman calls him a crackpot. The Southerners are saying, we're going to walk out and form a third party and make sure Harry Truman can't win the election if, if there's any endorsement of civil rights. And so in spite of this, and Humphrey had some very human trepidations, um, he goes ahead and gives this powerful, succinct, which was rare for him, speech <laughs> with these famous phrases about, for those who say it's too soon to move on civil rights, I say it's 172 years late meaning back to 1776, and saying it's time for the Democratic Party to walk out of the shadows of states' rights and into the bright sunshine of human rights. And when you listen to the audio of the speech, which people can find on YouTube, you can hear all the boos as well as the cheers. It wasn't clear he was going to win. 
but he gets the votes and suddenly the Democrats are the party of civil rights and the so-called Dixocrats do leave and Harry Truman has to run as a civil rights candidate and two weeks later he desegregates the military and the federal workforce and in November he, he defeats Tom Dewey in an upset. Why? Because of a surge of black votes in swing states that give him his electoral vote margin. And then it's true there's a long period of latency and inaction through the end of Truman's presidency, through Eisenhower, through Kennedy's first years. But once Lyndon Johnson becomes president after Kennedy's assassination, and Humphrey is one of his point people in the Senate, and then Humphrey becomes his vice president, they, with of course Dr. King leading the mass movement, because you have to have both, that mass movement on the outside, enact the landmark civil rights laws of the mid-60s, which fulfills a great deal of what was promised and what was foretold in the 48 convention. Well, there is a wonderful note of optimism to end on. Um, Sam, thank you so much. Uh, the book is so tremendous, and I just can't recommend thank it enough. Um, yeah, so thank you for joining us. And listeners, you can pick up a copy of Into the Bright Sunshine at an independent bookstore near you. Sam, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And yes, by Indy. And thank you, Whitney. And thank you, Sugi. It's such an honor to be with you. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel, and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!